almighty and all-living God, we come here today to celebrate what you have done in this place for the last five years of Spirit Life. We come here to celebrate that this church has been here for five years and has touched countless lives and has sung countless songs and has preached countless sermons and has just declared your love for the world, your love for this community for five years. And we are so thankful this day for the many hands that have made that happen, for the countless number of people that have been a part of setup teams throughout the years, for the countless, countless number of people that have been involved with hospitality over the last five years, with the praise band, with our children's ministry, the countless people, men and women that have come to this place and have helped out and have worked hard for you so that we could continue to make disciples of people in this community. God, we are so thankful. We are so thankful that you have called us to this place, that we could find a home in this place, that we could meet you in this place. We are so thankful. And God, as we turn to your word, read and proclaim this day, we know that you have called us here. And in calling us here this morning, you have already spoken to each one of us. So we ask that you continue speaking, that you continue speaking to us through scripture, through sermon, through song, and that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Has anyone been with us since the beginning, since the first? Wow, look at that. Ooh, way to stick it out. <laughs> I do want to say that uh, as we go about celebrating this after service today, there's a moon bounce in the gym because what five-year-old's birthday party would be complete without a moon bounce? Um, so make sure you, you know, after you collect your kids and feed them, send them in there and they can work off all the sugar. Quick question to start us out today. Who watched the television series Lost? Yeah? All right. <laughs> or at least the first season. I know after a few years it got a little weird. Uh, is it crazy to think that that show debuted over a decade ago? Uh, I, I can vividly remember watching the pilot, and I swear I'm not that old, but I guess numbers are what they are. Do you remember how the show opened? We're looking down on Jack as he wakes up. Then we look up from his perspective and see the trees. Then we look back down at him. Then we're back at the trees and back down on him and then back at the trees. And we're sitting there as we're watching this and we're thinking, who is this guy? Where is this guy? How did he get to where he is? What is going on? And now pretty soon after that, we see him running out, running out of the woods, and we see the wreckage of an airplane, and we get our questions answered. But for anyone who watched the show, you know that if you got one question answered, they raised seven more questions, still waiting to hear about the polar bears. Many other TV shows have started this way. It's a very good way to start a television show. Show us a character, tell us nothing about them, so we're left thinking, who is this man or woman? Who is this person? What are they doing there, wherever they are? How did they get there? And what's going to happen? Who are we? What are we? What are we doing here? 
How did we get here? Not only are these great ways to open a television show, those are big questions. They are some of life's ultimate questions. Right now at Spirit and Life, we are engaged in a quest to wrestle with just such questions. We are sharing together a series of studies from Scripture called God Quest. It's a multifaceted journey of discovery during which we are going to explore some of the most important, most difficult, most life-pressing questions, such as, can truth be known? Does God exist? Can I trust the Bible? We covered that one last week, and if you weren't with us, you can catch up on the podcast. In a couple weeks, we'll be talking about why is there so much evil and suffering in the world. Next week, we're going to talk about who is Jesus and many, many more. Today, we're talking about the origin of all things, the beginning. Who are we? What are we? Where did we come from? How did we get here? At its heart, so many of our academic disciplines are engaging these questions from different angles. Biology, physics, geology, and history all seek to provide an answer to the question of how did we get here? Biology and chemistry and philosophy and literature all deal with who are we and what are we? It's no surprise that the Bible would also seek to provide answers to these questions. But it might surprise us this morning to hear that the Bible doesn't offer as contrary or as ridiculous an answer as we might have thought. The, the Bible begins with these questions. The Bible begins with a poem that is about the ultimate question that we have as people. Who are we? What are we? How did we get here? It's almost as if the Bible anticipates our questions, anticipates our curiosities, and seeks to give us answers from the start. But while I think the Bible is answering these first and ultimate questions that we have, I think it's anticipating our curiosities. I think the Bible also begins with creation for a second reason. I think the Bible begins with creation because our attitude toward and about creation is effective for how we orient ourselves to faith and to life in general, how we orient ourselves to belief in general. What we think about who we are, what we are, and how we got here is going to impact how we think about a number of other things that we will address in this series. But as always, I'm getting very ahead of myself. Before we can talk about our views about, about how our views about creation orient us towards faith, we have to talk about those basic questions. Who are we? What are we? Where are we? And how did we get here? To answer that, to answer those, let's return to the opening poem. I'm going to be reading from Genesis 1. I'm going to be reading the entirety of Genesis 1. It's a long chapter of the Bible, so settle in. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, 
the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. We're almost there. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the grounds and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. I will say, that was a long scripture reading, but in God's defense, there was nothing and there was everything. So when you consider how much ground we covered, it's not too bad. I will also say that whenever my older cousins or older brother and sister got engaged, they'd come home and we'd celebrate as a family and my granddad would always say the same thing. Be fruitful and increase in number. (laughs) Subtlety. Not so much. In the beginning, God. This verse is paramount. Before there was anything else, 
there was God. While, there, while questions like who we are, what we are, etc., assume that we are the central character of this story, right off the bat, Scripture tells us that the central character, the primary character in all of history, in all of everything, is God. The next thing that jumps out to us in this poem is that creation is ordered. Things happen in linear, repeated patterns. There is structured movement. Things progress with intention. When God created the heavens and the earth, God moved and acted and created with purpose and with intention. The last thing we notice is that humans are created last and in God's image. If creation is an ordered process with intention, we are the culmination of that process. Everything leads to us. Now maybe you've noticed, I know I have, atheism is more popular today than ever. At least it seems that way, judging by bookstore shelves and TV talk shows and even advertisements on buses and subway trains. Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, has sold two million copies. Christopher Hitchens' book, God is Not Great, and Sam Harris's Letters to a Christian Nation have become bestsellers. And there are others, people who not only call themselves atheists, but who are driven to convert others to their point of view. And they have had some success. They have persuaded many. In fact, many of our neighbors and coworkers, even friends and family, tend to believe that modern science has disproven the existence of God. Can so many people be mistaken? Can smart, educated, best-selling authors be wrong? Can astronomers, physicists, and other scientists be missing the mark? When I was in college, I took a course called Faith and Doubt in the Modern Age. That course was actually a really big part of my call to ministry. You see, I was taking a few religious studies electives, and I was taken aback at how much I loved my religion electives, way more so than I liked the math courses for my major. And I thought, this shouldn't be right, so I changed and really stressed my parents out. But all was well. Faith in Doubt was one of those classes. The class was nicknamed Doubt and Doubt because the readings and subject matter dealt with challenges to religion much more so than belief than it, than it, did, uh, than it did with belief. The professor herself had been a religious person and even a nun for most of her life. However, at some point, she had lost her faith and became a self-professed agnostic. However, I will never forget in the final lecture, during which she talked about her personal history with faith and why she was teaching the course at all, she told us that she felt like atheism was the height of arrogance. She said, how could you look at the world and at life and everything around us and be so completely convinced that there is no God? King David would agree with my professor. You see, King David so ardently believed that you could look at creation and see God that he wrote multiple songs about it. We're going to turn to one of those this morning, which is Psalm 19. In Psalm 19, David says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. 
In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other, and nothing is deprived of its warmth. Now, I believe there are three key takeaways for us this morning as we read this psalm. The first is that I can see signs of God's existence in creation. Notice how Psalm 19 starts out. The heavens declare the glory of God. David does not preface the statement. There's no preamble. He provides no background or introduction. He simply says, the heavens declare the glory of God. He does not try to establish the existence of God. He does not argue for it. He does not go about the task of convincing anyone. I think that's because for David, the existence of God was self-evident. Look up, he would say. The heavens make it mighty clear that God exists. I think King David would have thought it silly for a man or woman to stand under the vast expanse of space, the starry stretches of the universe, and not see God's existence written there like a signature on a letter. The first book of Moses we read this morning starts at the same place. In the beginning of Genesis, we saw in the beginning, God There's no preamble, there's no argument, there's no preface. Just in the beginning, God. This is not a sign of ignorance, it is a revelation. It is an acknowledgement. Paul, the original church planter, for whom we probably owe a bit of a debt, being a church plant ourselves, um, would later write in Romans, what, be, what may be known about God is plain to them, and here he's talking about the Gentiles, those that are outside of what people would, would say is the, the revelation of Torah. What may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse In other words, I can see signs of God's existence in creation. So can you, so should everyone. The second takeaway is that I can see signs of God's intelligence in creation. When Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, the word glory encompasses not only the beauty of God, but also his wisdom, his knowledge, his intelligence, his skill, his attention to detail, his mathematical, scientific, and architectural precision, all of which can be seen throughout creation and all of which should move us to wonder and awe and faith. You see, some people believe that modern science has shattered all possibility of faith in God. Nothing more could be further from the truth. Modern science has actually given us more reasons to believe David's words in Psalm 19, that the heavens declare the glory of God. This phrase could literally be translated from the Hebrew as, the heavens number out the glory of the strong God. Whether we look from a distance at the panoply of the heavens, or see more than David ever dreamed through the Hubble telescope, the heavens number out the glory, the intelligence of our designer, God. There is a novel um, called God Quest that is based on, on this sermon series. And in that novel, one of the characters is explaining to another how not only the earth but our universe is so finely tuned to support life that it obliterates the possibility that it's the result of random forces. 
He chooses the Big Bang as one of those examples. He says, the Big Bang, as it's called, had to be fine-tuned so precisely it boggles the mind. If I remember right, the precision had to be something like 10 to the 55th power. That's 10 followed by 55 zeros. What that means is, if the Big Bang had launched itself a teensy bit faster, it would have expanded too fast to permit the formation of galaxies and solar systems and planets. If its initial speed had just been just a tiny bit slower, gravity would have forced it to collapse back in on itself. Either way, just a tiny bit less precise, and life, as we know it, would never have formed. And that's just one example among many. Author Sean McDowell explains that the conditions of the universe are fine-tuned for the emergence and sustenance of human life. Just about everything about the basic structure of the universe is balanced on a razor's edge for life to exist. The universe is so exquisitely calibrated, the great scientist Sir Frederick Hoyle suggested that a superintellect had monkeyed with the physics. He goes on to say Oxford professor Roger Penrose concluded that if we combined all the laws that must be fine-tuned, we couldn't even write the number, since it would require more zeros than the number of elementary particles in the universe. Simply put, the first evidence for a designer is the fine-tuning of the universe, which is best explained by a cosmic fine-tuner, our creator God. The third takeaway from Psalm 19 is that we can see signs of God's care in creation. The songwriter marveled at God's care, which is evident to us in, when we look at creation. He created numberless stars, yet he created you and me. He oversees the paths of planets and watches your every step. He established his sovereignty over all, but allows us to exercise dominion. The enormity of God's condescension or loving care for us is shown in the extent of how much God cares for us. Think about this. The God who created the constellations, who plumbed the depths of the seas, who invented oxygen and molecules and DNA, not only sees you, not only notices you, not only cares for you, he went to great lengths so that you can know his care for you. He came down all the way to this little blue ball rolling around the sun and lowered himself into the form of a human being like you and me to live as a man and die as a criminal so that one day you would know his great love and care for you and so that you could have a chance to be in relationship with him. So now we are, we are at a point to talk about what difference this makes for your faith, about how this fits together with the rest of of our beliefs, and the rest of our quest. You see, I think what we believe about creation orients us to the world and to God and to faith. We are, are we here because of a random coming together of different particles that could have come together in some other way? Are we here because of a series of genetic mutations, guesses, and experiments that just happen to yield human life? Is our consciousness merely just a step in the evolutionary chain? Is it possible that all there is could just as easily have not been and that we really got lucky? If this is your belief about the origin of things, it will mean you have certain beliefs about where we go from here. You might not think that we need to have any special care about other animals or the rest of the planet because 
they're the result of the same evolutionary free-for-all that we are, and if it's a free-for-all, we might as well win. Now, one could easily have an increased amount of care for animals or for the planet because there would be a rootedness in where we are. We're all in this together. However, it's going to impact how we are oriented to the world. Scripture tells us that we are the result of creation. Scripture tells us that God created this world in an orderly and intentional process that culminated in humanity's creation. Further, Scripture tells us that God's fingerprints are still all over creation as it continually moves even to this day. The sky, the stars, sunsets still reveal the glory of God. And if you hold that belief about the origin of all things, it will orient you to the world in a different way as well. You will look at life and at creation with a sense of gratitude. And more specifically, it won't be a general sense of gratitude that we're here. It will be a specific source of gratitude to the one who put us here, to the one who created all there is. You'll be grateful to God. And that gratitude can quickly turn to worship as we see that the God who made all there is continues to remake and sustain all there is. That the God who created is still creating, has not turned his back on the world, but is still intimately involved in our world. So as we look at the world and see the glory of God, the fingerprints of God still embedded in creation, as we see God at work in the world through creation, we are brought into a relationship with this God, brought to worship this God, made to fall in love with this God. We are in the midst of a series, a quest, to discover the God our hearts are longing for. We are on a quest for ultimate meaning and purpose. We come here today to get to know our God better, to figure out who is this God that is calling out to us. Or maybe more simply, we have these impulses, we have these ideas, we have these notions that we can't let go of, that there is something more, something greater that there is something else going on more than that which we can see or taste or touch. And we want to make sense of those impulses, ideas, or notions. What I want to tell you today is that one of the first steps in that, in understanding God, is understanding that... uh, Sorry. What I want to tell you today is that one of the first steps in understanding God, in understanding that idea of ultimate meaning or of something greater, is understanding what you believe about the creation of the world, what you understand about the origin of all things, what you understand about the beginning. I believe that God has created all things and ordered all things. I believe that God created the heavens and the earth, the sky and the sea and the land. God created the stars and the sun and the moon. God created plants and fish and animals. And I believe that God created you and me. I believe that the heavens and earth, the sea and sky, the sun and stars and moon, the plants and fish and animals declare God's glory. I believe that creation can and does bring us to a place of wonder, awe, and worship. And I believe that God calls to us, speaks to us, makes himself known to us through creation so that we can come to know about his existence and his love for you and for me. I believe understanding the world as created by God is one signpost on our journey to discovering the God who made us, loves us, and wants to be in active relationship with us. 
Today, I hope that you have discovered that you are made by God, that you have been made for God, and that through creation, God is calling out to you, calling you to himself so that you might discover the God your heart is longing for. Let us pray. Almighty and all-living God, you have created all there is, made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the sky and the land, the plants and fish and animals and birds, and even mosquitoes, though I might question that one. You reach out to us through the beauty and majesty of your creation, because the heavens declare your glory. All day they pour forth your praise. As we see all that you have made, as we see all that you have done, as we see all that you have done for us, we thank you. We worship you. And we want to be in relationship with you. We want to know how you would have us respond to this amazing gift. How you would have us live in this amazing place. So God, help us to follow. Help us to get to know you more. Help us to be in relationship with you. And God, if there are any here today who have looked at the sky and the stars and the moon and the mountains and the lakes and at all creation, if there are any today who have looked at cells and molecules and DNA and have thought maybe there's something more, but don't quite know you yet, our prayer is that you would pour out special grace to them, that they might respond, that they might seek your face, and that they might come to know you and to know your love. All this we ask in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who through whom all the heavens and the earth were made. Amen.